Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Prime Minister Trudeau is threatening Andrew Scheer with a libel suit over inappropriate comments made in a statement surrounding the SNC-Lavalin affair. What kind of budget can we expect this week from the Ontario government? And also, according to a report released by People for Education, some students are having trouble learning without structure in online courses. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, we got yet another chapter, of course, in uh, the controversy that's going on about the SNC-Lavalin situation. More importantly, not even the way the government handled it, but the fallout since then. The, and, and, you know, the, the way the Prime Minister has handled things, the resignations, the you know, the, the Wilson-Raybould thing, and on and on it goes. Well, uh, yesterday, uh, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the opposition, the conservative leader, uh, held a media conference and uh, re- told us all that the Prime Minister apparently is threatening to sue the leader of the opposition for libel. In a letter from Trudeau's lawyer, uh, he says that uh, they have taken issue with what they call inappropriate comments made by Scheer in a statement uh, in regards to documentation about the uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould case. And, uh, well, it got kind of messy, and uh, it, we're not quite sure where the turn's going to go, but Mr. Shearer seems to have a strategy in place. Well, I think it speaks to a, a multifaceted campaign to silence those who speak out against him. Uh, we know that Ms. Wilson-Raybould and uh, Dr. Philpott were kicked out of caucus for the, for the sole crime of telling the truth. Well, anybody that thought this was going to go away anytime soon has been sadly mistaken. Joining us to talk about what the next steps may be on this is uh, Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Hey, Peter, how are you doing this morning? Great, thanks. Good. Uh, this, uh, this, this thing, every time we just think, okay, maybe this is going to die down a little bit, somebody just kind of pumps some wind under the wings of it again, and this latest letter from the Prime Minister really seems to have done that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to see it as another uh, own goal for the, the government when all is said and done. Uh, I mean, certainly it provides an opportunity for the opposition party uh, to claim that they're trying to be silenced. Uh, I mean, we haven't actually seen much polling about how uh, citizens feel when, uh, you know, when when uh, the parties and politicians take each other to court. I mean, we've seen a few attempts lately to do that. I, I remember Kathleen Wynne, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and Mr. Hudak, I believe, was uh, one case, and then... Uh, Going back a ways, you had Stephen Harper uh, suing uh, Stéphane Dion for some comments where Dion claimed that uh, Mr. Harper had, uh, I think, bribed some people, bribed Chuck Cabin or Chuck Cabin's widow, widow to get a vote in a, in a tight, tight vote. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing this more often, but I suspect most citizens wonder what's going on. I, I don't think they necessarily want to see their politicians solving their differences in the court of law. And so in this case, I think it, it is a natural for Andrew Scheer to be able to say, uh, I'm trying to be silenced, as he did, and similarly, he could probably be very successful fundraising off the back of this with his uh, with his base, saying ultimately uh, the the Trudeau government is unable to beat us with political arguments, so they have to go to court. Yeah, there's another example. I think John Cretchen tried to sue Preston Manning, or threatened to anyway, uh, because of some accusation about uh, patronage in in you know making appointments to Senate. Of course, we know that never happens, right, Peter? <laughs> yeah, but perhaps they don't sell it in the way. I mean, I think Manny claimed that uh, Jean Chrétien had personally benefited from a, a Senate appointment, and that was maybe beyond the pale. When they go into something like this, though, like you say, if you take it into the into the legal realm now, as a we know there's going to be political back and forth and some bombast that goes on in this. But once they threaten court action, is is it really just a ploy? Because nobody's ever followed through on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, usually it's settled eventually, although, I mean, in some cases, like uh, the the case against Stéphane Dion, I think it was felt that uh, the money, the sums involved were sufficiently large for an, uh, an embattled and weakened 
uh, federal liberal party at the time that uh, it really did push him to pull back. Uh, and, and so we, in fact, saw a kind of fairly fulsome retraction from the part of Stéphane Dion. I mean, in a case like this, you have to ask why. Why would the liberals do this, given uh, everyone seems to see this as like a, a yet another failed strategy? And maybe part of it is uh, uh, to try and change the channel on Andrew Sheard and to, to try and make it seem like he will say anything, even things that are not true, uh, things that are exaggerated with respect to the scandal. So maybe a part of the strategy, similar to what I think, Kathleen Wynne was trying to do with Tim Hudak was to say, you can't just go out and say that I've committed something that's criminal. Uh, you may disagree with what I've done, but uh, there's no criminality in it. And if you do that, then you have to answer for that in court. So it may be in a case like this where people are looking at Trudeau and saying there's, there's someone who's unable to admit that he's done wrong. Uh, they may be trying to get the same question asked about Andrew Scheer. But uh, again, it's uh, it's hard to know whether that will be successful given uh, the ease with which I think the conservatives can say, look, they're trying to silence us. There's a, an interesting pattern developing here, and I'm glad you brought this up about the strategy, Peter. It just seems that ever since this controversy started, uh, when this came to light with Bob Fife's story in the Globe and Mail, it seems like it was a year ago now, but it was only about, I guess, eight, eight, nine weeks ago now, uh, everything the Liberals have tried to do to try to counteract anything that's come down here seems to have just fizzled totally. I mean, the, you got to wonder who's calling the shots here. Yeah, I mean, I think more generally, uh, you, it does raise questions about the prime minister. I mean, in most cases, in, in a scandal, I mean, uh, you know, Jean Chrétien, <laughs> to come back to him, famously said, you know, when you paint yourself in the corner, sometimes you've got to walk over the paint. Uh, in a way, you have to assume some version of what happened, accept uh, the consequences that come with that, and, and move forward. But this government seems not necessarily to have a real kind of clear ethical core, uh, where they can say, yes, in fact, this was something contrary to how we were we were planning to act, but there were important reasons why, and, uh, you know, let's move forward. Uh, and, I mean, there were a number of opportunities, I think, for Trudeau to take that. And, in fact, uh, you know, look like he was really concerned about employment and jobs and so forth. But the longer it, it moves along, the, the less credible any of that seems, because uh, there's no there's been no admission that anything untoward might have happened. Uh, and, you know, it would seem from the evidence fairly clear that, there had been pressure on the attorney general, and there should not have been pressure on the attorney general. Uh, I suspect if you you know went and said, "Okay, let's face the Canadian public this fall on that question," uh, Trudeau would have done quite well because most people don't really understand that principle, yeah. or they see uh, you know uh, they see it as a problem if a government contravenes it, but not one that necessarily requires you know, resignations of the prime minister or a replacement of the government. Well, I think that's what's amazing to an awful lot of people right now. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the protocol that's supposed to go around about lobbying ministers and then, you know, this fine line between, well, she's the justice minister, which is a cabinet member, but she's also the attorney general. And as a result, you shouldn't be lobbying her. And I think a lot of folks, that's, that's kind of inside baseball stuff. And it may be a little over the heads of, of some people, but the other element to this is, as you say, the way they've tried to basically justify this. I mean, isn't, isn't rule one in politics is when you mess up, you own it and just say, look, I messed up, I screwed up, let's, uh, let's move on? You would think so. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it would seem that uh, Trudeau, although he uh, likes to give apologies uh, uh, for what may have been collective errors in, in Canada's past. Uh, for himself individually, it seems admitting mistakes uh, is very hard for him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does lend, I mean, I think this is what's probably been more damaging for the Liberals, is uh, the more Trudeau comes out and speaks, the more it seems to be there's no kind of solid core there. Uh, there's no sense of, you know, what he believes, what he's for, what he's about, what principles he's standing on in this case. And, uh 
I think uh, it, he comes out looking weakened as a result. People are less likely uh, to trust him. And again, is, who's it really going to hurt him with? I suspect uh, the part of the electorate. I mean, part of the reason he won in 2015 is he expanded the electorate. He got young people and Indigenous people out to vote in much greater numbers. Uh, you know, I think with these kinds of performances, he begins to look like just another politician. And so his risk is, I think, losing those new voters he brought last time. Either they'll stay home or they may look for a house uh, somewhere else in the political spectrum. That's interesting because we've seen that phenomenon in the last number of uh, federal elections especially, haven't we? Uh, when voters become disenchanted, they don't necessarily swing over to the other side. They just don't b- vote. Yeah, I mean, again, in, in this case, it's hard to know who would change their mind. I mean, the, the people who are posting memes about, you know, how Trudeau should be tried for treason and so on probably weren't going to vote for him anyway yeah. in a case like this. Uh, I mean, Trudeau certainly was successful in taking a part of the electorate that swings between the NDP and the Liberal Party and really making them faithful to the Liberals. You know, people who might have voted for Jack Layton in 2011 uh, were voting for Trudeau in 2015. Uh, again, that's a piece of the electorate that he'll have to work harder to win this coming time uh, again, because I suspect uh, that his, his way of presenting himself makes him look less like the champion of some kind of progressive and different Canada and more like well, in fact, a not terribly uh, successful politician, one who has a tough time telling the truth, but, uh, you know, doesn't even stick to one truth. Well, and, and there's a body of work here, I guess, that's, uh, the, you know, we can start adding on here, whether it was the India trip or the uh, the gifts from the Aga Khan, whatever the case might be. Uh, it's it's almost a belligerence to say, look, I know what I'm doing, just leave me alone. And he seems to have taken that sort of attitude with this, too. I think the pivotal moment in this might have been that Friday morning when he summoned everybody to the to the press gallery there in Ottawa. Everybody thought there was going to be an apology there, and we didn't really get one, did we? No, I mean, we've never really received a very full accounting of the story, I think, in part because they had acted in a manner that was contrary to the principle of uh, the independence of the uh, of the Auditor General. I think they're also probably wondering a bit uh, if another shoe would drop in the sense that there was plenty that wasn't illegal in this case, uh, but nevertheless reflected poorly uh, on the idea of government being you know, fairly neutral between us. I mean, the extent to which SNC-Lavalin was able to employ uh, you know, such pressure and to have you know, actors at the top of the federal government more or less at its beck and call doing its bidding, again, probably doesn't sit that well uh, in terms of parts of the Liberal electorate who are a bit wary of that coziness with corporate Canada. Although in that case, it seems like, you know, the NDP, which would be the natural party to capitalize on that, hasn't been that successful in pushing those ideas or that narrative forward. Yeah, this seems to be a two-man battle right now, doesn't it, between Sheer and Trudeau? Uh, Yagmeet Singh, I guess, has made a couple of comments on that, but he doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot of media from it. Yeah, I mean, I would actually say it's a it's a one man battle. I mean, uh, maybe with this court case, Andrew Shear will become more part of the story. Uh, but ultimately, you know, this is a, a case I think of the decline of Parliament, where uh, the new information that's come up in this in this story has often been coming from journalists. Uh, we have seen some work in the in the Justice Committee, uh, and the te- you know the ability to compel testimony has also provided some facts, but. Uh, you know, when, it's hard to see Andrew Scheer really central in this story. It's been much more about Trudeau being held to account by the press uh, uh, and and the media's sort of constant telling of the story, and much less the opposition politicians being able to to lead the narrative. But obviously, he's hoping anyway that being Scheer to be the beneficiary of all this. Uh, does does he back off? I mean, there's a, another one of those old political axioms too: is when your opponent's twisting in the wind, you just stand back and let it happen. You don't try to jump in there and do anything about it. Because uh, that's where the focus of the attention is. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I mean, obviously, 
I think the people around Andrew Scheer are aware of the fact that he's been leader for two years now, and he's actually not that well-known by Canadians. Uh, I don't think they really know what to make of him or what his ethical and moral core is, what his, you know, what, what is really important to him. Why did he get into politics? Why is he, since, you know, his mid-20s, has he been a, a member of Parliament? What's he done? What's important to him? And so on the one hand, you know, they probably want to introduce him to Canadians. On the other hand, you're right. If if the uh, government is in a period of self-immolation, maybe just keep him away so he doesn't get, uh, you know, set on fire while that's happening. So uh, I think the Conservatives have a, have a difficult choice to make, because if they don't introduce Andrew Scheer soon to Canadians, uh, presumably the Liberals have some strategy for trying to paint the picture of, uh, well, of either, uh, you know, scary Andrew Scheer or... You know, Andrew Scheer, a career politician, you know, since his 20s, uh, what's he really done? What does he know about how people actually live and work and make a living in this country? Well, if you recall, uh, the listeners, that is, of course, I know you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, when he did win the leadership, I mean, there were a lot of stories and concerns and rumors uh, about those very extreme right-wingers that, uh, that Jason Kenney apparently is consorting with these days, too, that Scheer was actually beholden to them. That's kind of fallen away in the last little while, Peter, and I guess it's probably because the Liberals haven't really got time to go after Andrew Scheer because they're busy playing defense at this stage. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard to know. Uh, I mean, we saw with that uh, rally on Ottawa where the Yellow Vesters came and uh, uh, had a, a number of comments which you would have thought a federal conservative politician would have not wanted to be anywhere close to. I mean, certainly Preston Manning, who was seen as, you know, the sort of the new right guy in the 1990s, worked really hard to distance himself from those kinds of uh, claims and uh, actors. Uh, you had Andrew Scheer, you know, quite close to them. So, you know, it could be that the Liberals don't have the time and energy or money to uh, run against that. But, uh, you know, there may be more troubling uh, possibility is that that doesn't actually move many voters when, when all is said and done. I mean, we saw, you know, Doug Ford could uh, pose with Faith Goldie and... Uh, uh, you know, no one really thought that there was any issue there. Uh, I think we've seen Jason Kenney, I mean, <laughs> scandal a day. Yeah, pretty <laughs> Some much. Of these things. Uh, he looks uh, on course at the moment to be the next premier of Alberta. So, I mean, the other thing is that maybe that doesn't move votes when all is said and done, and so there's not a lot of interest on the part of the, the Liberals to push on that, uh, particularly as long as within the Conservative Party there's no one willing to you know, take the stand, kind of as Charles Adler did in his radio interview with uh, uh, Jason Kenney the other day, to really say, no, in fact, conservatism needs to set a higher moral standard in terms of how we deal with some of these uh, more uh, racist or nativist expressions that we're seeing at the moment. Peter Greif, uh, political science professor from McMaster. Peter, it's always insightful. Thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a budget week here in the province of Ontario on Thursday. Uh, Finance Minister Vic Fidelli will rise in the uh, legislature and uh, produce and introduce uh, Doug Ford's first full budget in an economic statement, of course, a couple of months ago. But uh, this is the uh, the whole thing. Uh, and there's a great deal of speculation about what's going to happen, although we already see some of the tea leaves, uh, some of the things going on right now. And it looks like it's going to be pretty tough austerity budgets, budget cuts, all of this sort of stuff, which kind of runs contrary to what we were told when uh, Mr. Ford was running for the top job, where he said he could find $6 billion in savings and no one will lose their job. Remember that phrase? Well, uh, that's probably not going to happen. But anyway, with the budget coming up, uh, an interesting piece, uh, op-ed piece, that actually appears in the Hamilton Spectator today, from former Ontario Cabinet Minister John Malloy who uh, talks about maybe uh, the time is now to revisit some of those ideas that happened in past budgets, including, 
Yes, even the Bob Ray government and their budgets. Uh, John Malo joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hi, John. How are you doing this morning? Are you there, John? There we are. Oh. Hi. Okay. I'm, are I, you, I, I failed button pushing, but other than that, I'm okay now. We're good to go. Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, we're good to go. Hey, great piece, very timely piece today. It's uh, entitled, uh, Compared to the Ford Budget, Ray Days May Not Seem So Bad After All. Uh, I don't know that anybody ever thought they'd be writing a piece like this, but at this, this is all a matter of, of I guess, levels of, of concern about what's going on in a province and, and, and the approaches to it. i got to ask you something, though. Uh, it, you know, we heard one thing during the election campaign, and obviously Ontario voters bought into it, John, and elected the conservatives, progressive conservatives, with a huge majority. Uh, and we heard this before, that, hey, don't worry, I'm going to find the savings, it's not going to hurt you a bit. Do, do you feel a, like a little bit Ontario voters are sort of like Charlie Brown, you know, where Lucy says, don't worry, Charlie, I'm not going to move the football? Well, it is. It's Groundhog Day, and I always point out that the, the, the biggest secret that voters don't realize is that every political party has the exact same budget to work with. Sometimes during the uh, the campaign time, and listen, maybe I'm guilty of it as, uh, as every politician, we all talk like we have access to oodles of money that the other party doesn't. I mean, when you become a minister, the first thing you realize is that 75, 80% of the money that you have is already spent, and it's you know, as I always joke, unless you're going to get rid of grade three or, you know, shut down half the hospitals in the province or things like that, there's not a lot of money to play with. So the only thing you can do is is cut. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see some pretty nasty cuts on Thursday. And we've already seen that, as you say, in some of the moves up to now. Well, through the education program, I mean, there were protests through the weekend again in Toronto at uh, Queen's Park because of some of the concerns about the education system right now. But despite what we hear in campaign promises, John, and you're absolutely right, all three parties are, are guilty of doing this. They always promise the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they say, don't worry, this is not going to bother you, it's not going to hurt you, it's not going to have an impact on your lives, we'll, we'll make it better, we're not going to make anything worse. But when you get down to it, if you want to start looking for savings, I guess the, the euphemism, it's efficiencies, that's what they use now, they don't, they don't say budget cuts now, they say efficiencies. Uh, there's, there's only you can either cut programs or cut people. There aren't too many options here, are there? You can uh, well, as I always say, you can you can borrow money, run a larger deficit. You can uh, uh, make cuts, as you say, or uh, you can raise taxes. They're the only three things you can do. The idea that uh, canceling coffee at uh, meetings, which is something that, that Doug Ford did, or you know replacing landlines uh, with cell phones. I mean, these might be. Uh, good efficiencies. These might save a, a couple of bucks, but compared to the size of a of a, of a budget that runs over a hundred billion dollars, it's not going to make a difference. I mean, if you want to make big savings, you're going to have to do things that uh, most likely are going to hurt people or are going to increase their taxes, and sometimes that hurts too. And what I get frustrated with is when you look at where they've started, they've gone after people that didn't vote for them. They've gone after the poor. They cut, you got rid of the basic income pilot. They've indicated, I think, some, some nastiness is coming in the social assistance front. They've gone after university students, after universities, after school boards. But, you know, we all know where this is going to end. In a couple of years, people are going to get fed up with these cuts, and they're going to put in a government that's going to start to spend again, and then after a while, maybe they're going to spend a little too much. And it it, it, it really, is, forget Charlie Brown, it's kind of, uh, you know, that uh, saying, which apparently Einstein didn't say, which is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for different results. 
But but we're going to do it again this Thursday, uh, notwithstanding uh, the fact that we've seen this, as you mentioned, Joan, we've seen this act before. Uh, but every now and then somebody comes along and tries to do something different. And uh, uh, you, you mentioned and referred back to the to the Ray days. The, Bob Ray was the premier, of course, in the early 1990s. And uh, his government came up with a, a rather novel solution at that time, uh, for those who may not have been around in those days. Uh, instead of simply letting people go and firing and cutting programs, uh, he decided on this program of Ray Days, which are essentially unpaid days uh, that people had to to work through the course of the year. And uh, that was a way to save money. And I guess it did save about $2 billion, didn't it? It did. It did. And it's interesting. Uh, uh, a while back, the uh, the agenda and some other television shows had Bob Ray on uh, speaking about it. And he talked about a very thoughtful process where he sat down with, with cabinet and caucus. They looked at where government spends, what some of the priorities were, how cuts would hurt people. And they came up with this idea. And, of course, there's a little bit of Nixon going to China. Here was a NDP government, very pro-union, very pro-organized labor. And ultimately, they had to impose this. They had to, in a sense, uh, interfere with the collective bargaining process. But when you look at the alternative, and, you know, you, the newscast uh, a few minutes ago talked about protests over education cuts. We have parents who are concerned about autism. We have university students who are seeing uh, a big changes in terms of their assistance. When you look at that, um, you know, what Ray Days represented, that sort of creativity and a little bit of thoughtfulness, Compared to that, uh, maybe there's something to be said for it. I'm the first to admit it was a political disaster. I think Bob Ray would admit it's a political disaster. But at least it showed some thoughtfulness and some creativity and trying to get out of this. Let's just cut and slash and burn, and then we'll get a government in that spends a bit and go through this cycle over and over. And maybe, you know, in this post-SNC-Lavalin world where everyone says we want to do politics differently... Maybe it's time to do it a little bit differently. Yeah, the the, the program, the social contract, is what uh, the then Premier Ray said. Uh, if for civil servants, uh, government workers that were making over thirty thousand dollars a year, they had to work twelve unpaid days, and they, they that was the tag they called it. Of course, it was Ray days. I, I got to tell you, John, you, well, I can underscore how unpopular it was. Obviously, it probably cost them the election in 1995, and, and typically we swung over to the polar opposite political end of things with the Harris Common Sense Revolution. But I know people today, John that were affected by that, that still hold a resentment towards the Bob Ray and the NDP and say, they ruined it. How could they possibly do that? Because, as you say, it circumvented the collective bargaining process, which in their minds was sacrosanct. And as I, you know, as I point out in the column, I, uh, I didn't want to get bogged down in the, in the details of it. And I certainly admit that I, as a cabinet minister, I never had a group come to me and say we're, we're being paid too much money. But I think there is a way, you know, and maybe in this new world where everyone wants to do politics differently, that maybe we can capture some of the creativity and some of the, the thoughtfulness uh, that went into it. When I think of a, of a parent who's upset over what's happening with uh, their kids trying to get assistance to, to university and college, and that's going to become more and more apparent as OSAP applications and things get processed. When I think of parents who are upset about... Uh, uh, you know, their their son or daughter being in, in huge classrooms, overcrowded classrooms in, in high school, when you think of the, the plight of people on social assistance, maybe something along the, the line of Ray Days, maybe something where there's some sort of negotiated settlement might have a little bit more appeal in, in, in this day and age. I mean, if they're the two alternatives, it's a, a debate that's worth having. Well, and, and again, I, I, as you said in the piece, it's not as if we're advocating and saying, hey, that's what they should, we should you know, bring back the radius. I'm not suggesting that at all. I think what you're suggesting here is let's do some outside-the-box thinking instead of the usual let's just start slashing programs. And, I mean, I, I you know, I... 
I fear I'm sounding too naive as someone who actually sat around the cafe table. But, you know, sometimes I think if you if you could sit down with the stakeholders, you know, so I was a minister in charge of colleges and universities. If you sat down and said, look, this is the target. This is where I got to get. What what can we do together? What are the areas where, you know, there there may be some room to maneuver? Are there some, some things that we could do that could give you a little bit more flexibility that might make it a little bit more palatable? That sort of discussion. But I don't see this. I see Thursday... Uh, not only being slash and burn, but a little bit of bravado. Oh, you know, the horrible liberals and reckless spenders, and we're going to come in and it's going to be slash and burn, and oh, and it was worse than anyone thought. And, you know, you could you could write the speech right now. Uh, we all know what they're going to say. And, you know, that in the context of, of uh, uh, Doug Ford, I believe the quote was, you could sneeze at Queen's Park and find billions. Well, they haven't found billions by sneezing. I mean, they canceled free coffee at meetings. That didn't find billions. So now they're going to have to go after uh, programs and services that that, that are going to hurt people. And, you know, it's 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 going to be a bit of a mess when we wake up Friday morning. And uh, I I just want to cry uncle. I don't I don't know if this is is the way we need to do this from now on. No, but it's you're right. There's a pattern here. It is Groundhog Day because it's the same thing over and over again. Uh, Because I can remember talking to to Bob Ray back in those days about his justification for this. He was here in studio. We were talking about this. And, of course, we saw the, the howling from the, the unions as a result of this. No way you're going to make us work for free. Uh, but then, you know, Mike Harris came along, and 7,000 nurses lost their jobs. And, you know, I asked one of them rather poignantly. I said, well, do you want the Ray Days back? Because it's a little too late now. They didn't look so bad after all. And we're heading for this again, aren't we, John? Yeah, I mean, it is, and we're going to go through it. And I suspect, uh, you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the next election, but people are going to start to sour on it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have a new government. And listen, when I came in in 2003, and this may, uh, uh, you know, you can accuse me of being overly partisan, but when we came in, there were a lot of groups and organizations that had suffered through the, the, the uh, Harris cuts. Uh, you know, movement hadn't been made on important files, that sort of thing. It took a long time to restore it. And I remember as, a, as both an MPP and a minister thinking, this is a waste of time. If, yeah, uh, you know, there, there, there could have been some belt tightening, there, there, there could have been some slowdowns. But the fact is, some of these cuts, and a lot of them are very ham-fisted, they're not thought through, they've not only hurt people, but they've kind of set things back, and it's going to take a couple of years to get things moving again. Um, you know, why do we have to always waste so much time trying to uh, undo uh, some of the damage that's done? There, there, there must be ways, more creative ways to do it. And again, it may be a slowdown, it may be a freeze, it may even be a little bit of a reduction. But if it's done, if it's a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more creative, and it doesn't seem to just be uh, aimed at uh, uh, those groups and organizations that uh, maybe are not in the government's uh, Christmas card list, uh, I think I think it makes for a better province over the long term. Where where can you find something in this political bag of tricks, though, John? That, that's going to be innovative. You know, go back a generation or two in politics. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the government at that time tried wage and price controls after a federal election. Uh, that didn't go over very well with a whole lot of people, as as, as the Ray Day situation was. Uh, where where can we get this outside the box thinking? I mean, it doesn't seem as if there's a whole lot of creativity going on at Queens Park these days. Well, I think there's uh, there, there there's three things. I mean, first of all, you have to develop a level of trust uh, between the government and some of these stakeholders. And obviously, some of the rhetoric uh, out of Queen's Park, some of the rhetoric from the election uh, doesn't help. 
I think the the second thing is you you've got to be honest and transparent as to where you want to go in terms of uh, the spending cuts and the reductions that are needed. And then third is you have to develop some sort of uh, consultation which actually brings together the stakeholders in a way where uh, you know there's an open exchange where there's a bit of accountability on both sides. The third, what I'm saying, it may sound impossible, but it has been done. It's been done often on a, on a smaller scale. Um, you know, we, we had changes in Ontario to the Condominium Act. Again, it, probably a little bit obscure unless you live in a condo or own a, a condo building or a condo unit. And I remember there was a, a very uh, robust system that was put in place where they brought together all the stakeholders. There was a lot of exchange back and forth. It wasn't this typical, let's have a have a church basement uh, with, uh, you know, Timbits and bad coffee and everyone can stand up and uh, complain at a microphone. Let's bring together uh, university presidents or college presidents and say, look, these are the types of reductions that we're looking at. Um, how do we get there? I mean, I used to hear from stakeholders and, you know, it's time for them to put their money where their mouth is. Stakeholders would say to me, you know what, if you worked with us, we actually could see some areas where we could find some savings or maybe some alternative ways to finding revenue. Um, am I being a bit naive? I might be a tiny bit naive. But again, you know, look at the follow from the SNC Lavalin. People are starting to say we've got to do politics differently. And at least an effort by the Ford government, uh, particularly after, you know, this nonsense during the election that I'm going to sneeze and find billions. Well, you know, I don't think his sneezing has paid off. So uh, a little bit of back and forth. But I don't think that trust is there. I don't think they've done much uh, uh, to instill trust with uh, with unions or with many of the transfer agencies, the social service agencies and things like that. You, you talked about the winners and losers, and, and you know there's going to be a list of winners and losers, of course, after the budget on Thursday. Is it because, John, the political parties, once they they take government, uh, are guided too much by political ideology as opposed to pragmatism? Well, because yeah, I mean, this I, government's spending lots of money, despite what he wants to say. You know, that, you know that. Well, we don't have money for education, but we've got thirty million dollars to fight the, uh, you know, the the carbon tax program. Uh, you know, we're going to fire the board of directors for hydro. That costs them millions in compensation, and on and on it goes. So, it's just a matter of where they feel that they want to spend the money, as opposed to the previous government. Yeah, and I mean, it's a lot of it short term, uh, short term thinking. Uh, you know, I, I I keep going back to the student assistance, uh, and you know, again, I I was the minister in charge of it for for over four years, and you know, I, I don't think parents and students have realized what a big change this is going to be. Uh, you know, this fall, there's going to be students who won't, quite frankly, be able to afford to go to, to college or university. Uh, there's going to be students taking in a lot more debt and things like that. It's very, very short-sighted of the government because we want to have a highly educated workforce. Uh, you know, some of the, the, the cuts around social assistance, some of the ones there's been some minor ones announced uh, certainly the basic income was a major one but i think there's there's big ones coming they signaled that what's that going to do that's going to fill our emergency rooms that's going to put a strain on our justice system i mean all these things are sort of short-sighted and over the long run i think we're going to see some uh, uh you know more costs going up as uh, people aren't able to fulfill their studies or people aren't able to get the assistance they need. I think there's a, a much more holistic view that a government can take. Um, there have to be some tough decisions. There's always tough decisions in government. But this let's come in and, and, and slash and burn and, oh, it was worse than anyone thought and the cupboards were bare and now we have to do it. And 
that sort of thing. I just don't think it leads anywhere. Well, and again, I think it's the polarization. Like I say, the the idea that they are so blinded now by their ideology. Uh, and and you know, it's a, for, I'll use the example of the Ford government. You know, they are dead set against carbon taxing. And Preston Manning's op-ed piece last week, I'm sure you saw it, John, basically told Doug Ford and, and, and Andrew Scheer and others, hey, back off. The carbon tax is not a bad idea. He says it's not being implemented properly, but he didn't have a problem with it as, as a concept. Uh, the whole idea about the, the basic income project, too, was actually designed by a conservative. But all of a sudden, you know, that doesn't matter anymore because their ideology says it's bad, so that's the way they're going to treat it. And we don't, we don't talk about where do, where do we want to go? Where do we want to get to, you know? Uh, presumably, we want to have uh, the most highly educated workforce around. Presumably, we want to find a, a route that's going to uh, support people who are struggling and uh, help them uh, get into the workforce or back into education or back on their feet. Uh, you know, how do we get there? And different political parties are going to have a, a different recipe or a different mix for it. But let's have that discussion as opposed to just coming in and uh, uh, slashing and burning and saying, well, there was an increase uh, planned for those on social assistance, but we're not going to go ahead with it. Or in the conservative case, they, they cut it in half. Uh, uh, you know, student aid, where, I mean, this bogus, let's cut tuition by 10%, but then essentially, from what I understand, half the amount of money that's going to uh, support students who are trying to go to colleges and universities like you know what's what's the end goal here how do we achieve it uh you know i think they have every right to admit that that, that times are tough that maybe we're not going to have the resources that uh, we want but we're going to work towards them we're going to be flexible and creative and I, I think people are looking for a government that's a, a little bit more thoughtful and i fear that thursday is not going to be uh, uh very thoughtful my wife, when she read the, the column, she said, well, what if it isn't a budget like that? And I said, well, I'll go on a bit of an apology tour, so maybe you <laughs> can have me on again to apologize if, uh, if, if there's lots of lots of funding for uh, supporting students and poor and things like that. Yeah, but John, uh, you, you've been... no, that's not there. You've been in the game long enough to understand that. I really don't think when Vic Fideli reads your piece today, he's going to say, you know what, I need to make some modifications. I'm not so sure that's going to happen, but we'll see. No. Hope, <laughs> hope springs eternal, I guess. John, thanks so much for the time. Great piece today in the spec. Well, thank you. Former uh, Cabinet Mr. John Malloy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to a report released by People for Education, uh, just 5% of students per high school are actually enrolled currently in online courses. Uh, some are having some trouble with it, and uh, that's why a number of people are concerned about the uh, announcements being made by the Ford government over the last couple of days about actually increasing that. Uh, the goal, we're told is that of the uh, 30 credits needed for a diploma, at least four of them are going to have to be e-learning credits uh, starting in 2021. Joining us to talk about the report and the uh, implications of uh, some of the policies is uh, Annie Kidder, who is the executive director, of course, of uh, People for Education. Morning, Annie. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing very well because it might even be spring. Uh, it's 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 looking like it. I, I, yes, I'm not sure exactly. if it's it's committed to it full time yet, but at no. least we're getting a little hint of it anyway, aren't we? Exactly. Well, let's let's talk about this because I, I, on the surface, hey, you know, having students that are, are computer literate is an absolute and essential. We understand that, but is 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 e learning and, and computer literacy necessarily the same thing? That's a, that's a fabulous question. No, they're not. I think that you know, overall, understanding that technology. Um, is you know not only here to stay, but an incredibly important part of education. So I don't. Nobody is saying, oh, technology is evil. Let let's get rid of it. So 
it supports amazing work. Kids are collaborating with kids, you know, in different continents. They're, they're working on incredible projects together, learning computer skills, all of those things. Those are very, very, very important. And it's um, also important to have the flexibility to provide some courses online, you know, in, in rural areas or in northern Ontario, um, where it's impossible to provide all the courses kids need. It's, it's made a huge difference. So there are examples there where um, students are learning. It's, it's still live. You're still connected to other people by screens, by all of the fabulous technology we have, you know, so that the, the teacher is right there. You can interact, ask questions. So that's one kind of form of online learning. Other forms of online learning look more like, uh, you know, what to me as a very old person would be like a correspondence course mm-hmm. where, you know, you read the unit, you answer the questions, you send your thing in, you get the next unit, and there's much less interaction with a teacher. So there's lots of different models, and I guess um, we're asking the question, um, you know, what's the educational purpose of this? Um, and, you know, it's important that we start with that, that this will be really good for students because X or Y. We're not quite clear about what that yet. And also, we have to make sure, I mean, what, what startled us was when we asked uh, principals uh, in schools where there is online learning, which in most hi- high schools there is, uh, where they offer it, only 5% of students are actually enrolled in e-learning right now. So to try to go in basically a year and a half from 5% to 100% of students, that is a very, very, very big leap. And we want to, you know, so we're asking the we're suggesting that in fact the province should uh, consult with principals, teachers, uh, academic experts to understand what kind of supports to be need to be in place. What are there some subjects that are impossible to do this way? Are there some students? for whom, uh, you know, e-learning just doesn't work. But, you know, basically we're saying we need to know a lot more. We need to, you know, move cautiously in this particular area. Yeah, I was talking to a teacher about this over the weekend, and they like this is saying this is like saying you have to pass the course, you have to be able to ride a bicycle while you're doing this. Not all kids can ride a bicycle, uh, and not all kids are going to be good at e-learning, yet it's now it's going to be a requirement. Yeah, so I think and I think probably a lot more kids can ride bicycles than, than do Probably, that. yeah. You know, so and I think but it's important, you know, we we all have to be careful that we're all just going, no, this is terror, you know, that we don't just react to things and that we actually say, look, we got to learn a lot more first. So, you know, and it is a little bit worrying that these announcements are coming a little bit like we've already decided this is what's going to happen. And and we're just suggesting let's slow down a bit and let's really really talk to um to teachers, to experts. There, you know, Ontario has incredibly wonderful education, you know, researchers in our universities. Let's ask them, you know, how has this worked in other jurisdictions? And and again, it fundamentally it has to have a good, strong educational purpose, um, because if there's any, if it's just about saving money, it's not a good idea. But if there are other ways of supporting this, and it's leading to different kinds of learning, then we we sh- we should explore it. Um, but we just have to make sure that we've yeah looked at it from a lot of different angles first. One of the things that caught my eye, and I, I wanted to get your read on this if I could, Annie. The fact that as you guys did your research on this, uh, People for Education, only 5% of students are taking these courses, uh, these e-courses now. Why so low? 
Well, that, you know, that's also a really good question. And it's funny because I remember the first time that we asked this question and we talked to somebody, a civil servant in the government, whose job it was to encourage people to do e-learning. He was so upset <laughs> at how low the number was um, because they really would like more kids to do this. There are some courses that work really well this way. And they're, you know, so he, he, it made him very sad, I could tell. And it's gone up only a tiny amount. I mean, that's the other thing that we've been looking at this for, for nearly 10 years now, and it's, you know, it's gone all the way from 2% to 5%. So I, you know, part of it may be kids like having a real teacher in a class that they can interact with. You know, so principals say, you know, they offer these courses and principals say, but not all students are successful in them. And it, and it really depends on the class too. So it, it, a whole something else completely would have to happen to move these numbers, but you would have to make the courses themselves incredibly attractive and also figure out a way so that, you know, kids are supported to take them. Because it is, like, that is a very small number. And it's obviously for whatever reasons we need to ask students why they aren't, you know, why they aren't taking them now. Um, it's definitely not appealing to, to the vast majority of students. Are they intimidated by it? Well, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm, I, you know, we, we would have to ask them that. No, I'm, you know, and I, it's probably, why would I want to? You know, what, why, why would I want to take a course online when I can just walk down the hall and take it? Um, and I'll be with my friends and I'll, you know, it, for them too, it's, what's the value of me taking a course online? You know, you, you don't sort of want to understand that. And, you know, so for some kids, it may be just a totally unknown territory they don't want to go into, which case, let's figure out a way to support them to do that. But, and I guess that what the, all this brings up is, these are all the things we don't know. <laughs> and, and we need to make sure we do know them before we implement this. Well, and, and like you say, I'd like to see a little more meat on the bones before they simply move ahead and say, this is the goal and we want to do this within the next year and a half. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, I mean, you know, I, I think you and I have discussed this in the past. Uh, some students need structured environments in which to learn. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they can't. And I, look, at I know students at the other end of that spectrum, too, that, you know what, you can leave them on their own, they'll get it done, they have the self-discipline to do that. Not all students do that. And, uh, and, and to say, okay, you've got to do this right now, what happens for the student who's struggling with this? Is there a resource they can turn to? Who, I mean, in classroom, you just put your hand up and said, I don't get this. Mm-hmm. You don't do that necessarily with an with a need program. No, and, and, and that part we don't know either. One of the things in the announcement was that they would all be centralized because right now um, they are run by school boards or sort of consortium of school boards. Um, so what does that mean, too? You can take online classes through TVO, um, but, you know, trying to understand what that part, you know, what that will take. And, and yes, will there be supports available if you're doing your class at 2 o'clock in the morning? Can you talk to somebody? And also, there are some, there are a lot of competencies and skills that you learn at school that have to do with uh, collaboration, with interaction with other people, with being able to test an idea, look at it critically, take it back, revamp it, work on it again. Um, so I, th- I think we also have to look at what kinds of classes work through e-learning and what kinds of classes don't. And that's also, you know, that's just, it's also another question in this. A lot of questions, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and not a whole lot of answers at this stage. And, not and, yet. 
and, and that's why I'm, I'm fascinated with this. I, I'm with you. I don't want to just give this a thumbs down and say this is wrong-headed. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the date, I think the timelines are a little uh, aggressive, and I'm yeah. not so sure that we know everything that we're going to have to do to get there. And as you say, the, the bottom line here is what's the net benefit to students and to the system as, as a whole? Yeah, and that has to be in everything that we do, that has to be the question. Now, I, you know, this, this government was elected on, we're going to do something about the deficit, and we're going to balance the budget, and that's perfectly within all, you know, government's responsibility and their, their right to do. But we have to make sure in education, when we're making decisions about education, that we're looking at that educational piece first. And then, you know, there may be ways we can figure out how to do some things more efficiently or, you know, have things cost less than they do right now. But we have to make sure that we ask the educational question to start with and then and then go, okay, and then how would we fund this? What about accessibility? Uh, this is one of the other things in the report that I, I found fascinating. Uh, 68% of elementary schools, 22% of secondary schools have to fundraise for technology. So it's not there for everybody right now. So, But, you know, the government's forcing it and saying it's going to be a priority and it's going to be mandated. Right? I, I, I'm assuming that means there's going to be a huge flux, influx of cash to try to accommodate this. And, uh, and so they have that sort of technology available to them? Well, uh, that, that's a good question, too. I think one of the things they did say that because some principals in some schools, they don't even have broadband still. So that um, there was an understanding in the announcements that there have what, they had to make sure the infrastructure was in place um, in all schools. But again, when you think of, you know, is this making sure that all kids, every single individual child has a computer? I don't know, because that's what um, people are fundraising for. Um, so, and there's a real difference in terms of what, if you're in a high income neighborhood, you can fundraise for, you know, all the bells and whistles a lot more than in a low income neighborhood. So that part too, trying to understand whether or not the actual infrastructure and resources are in place to support this is going to be really important. We could see it. We asked schools about, do they have a bring your own device policy? Um, and and lots of schools do where they actually use cell phones, um, but <coughs> but principals said in you know principals who were in low income neighborhoods went well we have this policy but people don't have the devices to bring or you know so we're it, it's very important and again it goes back to how do you implement things that you take the time to look at all of the aspects of it make sure all of the pieces are in place that you've understood the complexity of of what supports and resources need to be there, and then implement it. And again, you know, I think it is really important that we all try not to just react against things, um, but it's understand, you know, and I mean, anybody who's ever had anything to do with policymaking goes, it's all about the implementation. That's often where things go wrong. I mean, we just saw it in the um, the autism, mm-hmm. uh, new autism policy, where it's like, whoa, okay, just a second here. We didn't quite think this through. Um, and we have to make sure that it's, you know, well thought through, because that is where things go off the rails is in the implementation. But isn't this the same government that, uh, that said we shouldn't have cell phones, kids shouldn't have cell phones in classrooms anymore? I mean, if they're trying to make them computer literate and, 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 and ease the, this, this transition, it would seem that that's a useful tool for a lot of students. Well, and that's, I mean, we did ask about that. So we asked about, um, we wanted to find out in, in individual schools how much are teachers using cell phones or, you know, uh, whatever they're called, t- 
tablets, there yeah, you go, okay, yeah. um, <laughs> for, for students' work. And in two-thirds of high schools, they're, 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 they're using them every single day. So, um, you know, we have to think about that, too, about, um, you know, again, it's technology. So, yes, cell phones, but all of us adults, too, you know, are distracting, are addictive, are we all... Uh, maybe I'm speaking too personally here. I have my own cell phone problem. Um, but, but, <laughs> but teachers are using them, you know, because kids are on them all the time. So, we, you know, this is all part of it's 2019. How do we embed all this uh, in school rather than going cell phones are easy, evil? Let's get rid they're, they're not going to go away anyway. And I think even the policy to ban them says unless you're using them for educational purposes, and they are being used for educational purposes. And so it's all it's all part of... Uh, yeah, it's all of a piece, but we do have to understand that you know there, the 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 potential in using technology in education is huge. It doesn't. It's not a replacement for teachers. It's not a replacement for that that relationship. That's a core part of learning, but it really can enhance learning. Well, and and that's what this debate has unfortunately come down to, uh, where you know some of them that are supporting the government's initiatives here are simply saying, well, the pushback they're getting from parents and teachers now is because teachers are worried about their jobs, uh, which I think is totally untrue. Uh, I, I, what I'm concerned about is I still think, and I'm not so sure the government shares this, that teachers still play a very integral role in education. And uh, when you hear about teaching positions being eliminated and more e-line courses e- as opposed to to in-classroom stuff, you get a little worried about where their focus is here. Well, and sometimes there's a danger in doing too many things at the same time. And then and then there's a tendency, and you can look at it in e-learning, to kind of lump everything together and go, oh, you know, is this a conspiracy or is this all about cutting funding? And it isn't all about cutting funding, I don't think. Uh, but it is that, you know, that's again where we have to watch on the implementation piece. I- implementing a lot of changes at the same time is hard, and it's especially hard on the people working in schools. I mean, you know, we've been talking to principals in schools all over Ontario for years, and and that's one of the things that they talk about is, I, I don't want another new policy or another new thing to implement on top of everything else. And they're, they definitely, they're not, you know, it's not a knee-jerk reaction against change, but it is to say, please, can you keep track of how many new things you're, you're kind of loading on us and give us a little breathing room to make sure we're implementing them properly? Um, uh, yeah, so, but sorry. Um, so, we, you know, we have to just watch all of that. I, I mean, from, from a political forward. standpoint, it may you know be advantageous for them to just roll things out one after another, after another, to, and then come back and say, "Look, we're doing stuff here." But you're right, as you said a couple of minutes ago, uh, it's it's about implementation, and the people at the other yeah. end, uh, it, it, those in the schools, those on the front line, they're the ones that are going to say, "Whoa, hold on, just a second here," you know, before you throw another ball in the air here, let me juggle the ones I've got. No, absolutely. So I think that, you know, and we will keep releasing reports going, you know, this is what's going on with this. And it is, you know, there are a lot of civil servants up there, you know, working on these things. But it's, but it is very important that, um, that some things be done slowly. Sometimes it's frustrating, I know. And that we're, we're thinking through how all of these pieces are connected to each other, too. So if you're changing, you know, the number of teachers in the school, uh, and, uh, and adding e-learning and adding new policy about cell phones and adding new policy about math, we, we just have to watch 
uh, how much goes into that mix. And the impact it's going to have on the students, too, not yeah, just the teachers. Yeah, exactly, because that's, mo- you know, as, on the students, because that's really what we need to be caring about. Annie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your insight okay. into this. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Annie Kidder, of course, the Executive Director of People for Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.